Hello, greetings. Hope that you're doing well. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. If you'll join with us today, we will consider the words of Paul to the Philippians, beginning in chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to all to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment, and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So we see how Paul ends Philippians. From the beginning of the text, we see that Paul and Timothy are writing to the church in Philippi with the elders and deacons, uh, overseers and deacons. And the church in Philippi we've seen was established around year 51, despite persecution in Acts 16, and that from many clues that we've seen throughout the letter, and we can certainly see at the end of the book, uh, Paul is writing while he is imprisoned in Rome about a decade later, 60-62, uh, according to Acts 28. In general, he's been writing to update them on his condition about Epaphroditus. He provides some exhortation and encouragement to some fairly mature Christians. And we've seen earlier in chapter 1 
And Paul has prayed to God in thankfulness for these Christians and their growth in love and righteousness, that his condition has actually advanced the gospel, that some are preaching Christ out of rivalry, but some out of goodwill, but in all things Paul rejoices that Christ is preached. The idea that to die is gain and to live is Christ, that even though it would be better to go and be with Christ, it is more necessary to continue to work in the flesh. And that whether Paul lives or dies, God will be glorified in him. The Philippians are to live as worthy of the gospel, and they are to suffer in Christ with Paul in the first chapter. second chapter, he wants the Philippians to make his joy full by living in unity, then to have Christ's mind in them, to humble oneself before God so as to be exalted by him, to work out of salvation and obey, for God is working in us, to be lights to a crooked generation, and he commends Timothy and Epaphroditus. And in chapter 3, he warns them about the circumcision. It says the Christians are the true circumcision, that the fleshly status is of no importance, but that of the greatest importance is the obtaining of the resurrection of the dead, and that he's pressing on to obtain the goal of the upper calling of Christ. That unfortunately, those in the world are headed to condemnation, but believers have citizenship in heaven from which a Savior is expected to transform us. And as we see verse 1, perhaps in your Bible, or in other places, you can see that chapter 4 and verse 1 is sometimes put with the end of chapter 3 uh, in terms of sectioning out. Again, the chapter and verse markers are added later. And so you can very much see chapter 4 and verse 1, if nothing else, as a hinge. Uh, that because those in the world are enemies of the cross of Christ, and we await a Savior from heaven where our citizenship is, and the Savior is going to transform our bodies to be like his body, we are to stand fast in the Lord. Uh, or you could see that stand fast, Lord, that, that conclusion kind of also leads you on to the rest of what he's going to say. So it's right there, right in uh, bridging uh, these thoughts at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. And then he turns to some of these personal matter, so to speak. And so he exhorts Yodia, which means prosperous journey, and Syntyche, a pleasant acquaintance, to be of one mind the Lord, the loyal Syzygus, or yoke fellow, is to help them, because they with Clement have labored with Paul in the gospel, their names are in the book of life. Now Clement's interesting. Clement is thought to be the same individual who will eventually be one of the elders in Rome and will write the letter that we call First Clement uh, from the elders of the Rome to the, ch- to the elders in the church in Corinth. Um, and the use of the book of life is unique to Paul's writings. He doesn't use it elsewhere. We otherwise see it in Revelation, and we see it frequently in Revelation. Um, used, as you would believe, seven times. What's going on in the situation, we don't know. There's some kind of disagreement between two of the congregation, and a certain male member is exhorted to help sort out their differences so they can be of one mind in the Lord, as he's been exhorting throughout the letter. Uh, at the time, Yodi and Syntyche are attested as names. Um, Syzygus, most people don't think is actually a name, although it would be a very interesting and amazing name. It's possible, though, that all three are nicknames or ciphers. The idea that he's using these terms, we put them in quotes, these are just names being used to identify people, uh, nicknames or just ciphers. That, okay, here, these are the, there's these two people that they need to agree, and this person who's got an ability to help them should help them, uh, that Paul knows who he's talking about, and the Philippians would know who he's talking about as well. Uh, we, we just don't know. We can't be sure. We don't have enough information given. In verse 4, he 
commands the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord twice. Rejoice, and again I will say rejoice. It's been a theme in chapter 1, verse 4, and verse 18, chapter 2, verse 2, 17, 18, and chapter 3, and verse 1. Uh, he's emphasized that need to rejoice. Then they are to display their epiacus, which is something that is seeming or suitable, therefore forbearance or reasonableness or moderation to all men, because the Lord is at hand. Uh, we get that same idea in Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 5, that uh, the Lord can come at any moment. We need to behave appropriately, and our conduct should reflect that among those uh, with whom we live in the world. In verses 6 and 7, uh, Paul then encouraged the Philippians not to be anxious in anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving there to make the requests known to God, that his peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard their hearts in Christ if they do so. In verse 8, the finally is toloipon. It's the same that we saw in chapter 3 and verse 1. It means literally to the rest. Uh, this is the way you conclude a message. And Paul is a good preacher. This is now his second conclusion. Uh, but what's really important about that is it really emphasizes, as to the rest, this is something really important. Uh, he exhorts the Philippians to think upon whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, of good report, of virtue, or of praise, and do the things which they saw, heard, received, and learned from Paul. They do so, the God of peace will be with them. Paul then turns in verses 10 through 20 to talk about the Philippians and their support and of him and how he is thankful for it. He's thankful that they revive their thought, froning, uh, which is also there in verse 2, uh, for him. He knew they thought of him in the meantime, but he knew they lacked opportunity to provide assistance. Uh, so the, the, this is not just an idea, oh yeah, there's Paul out there. It's not like they've forgotten that Paul exists. This thought involves care, concern, to the point of providing support, assistance, providing some kind of a benefit. And he wants them to know that he's not talking about not talking about receiving this gift or to receive things in terms of covetousness or want, because he's learned contentment. Either he, when he's lacking or abounding, he's learned to be content, because he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him in verses 12 and 13. But he says the Philippians have done well to have fellowship, which is sukonesantes, uh, sharing in common with his afflictions, of all things, in verse 14. And he reminds them that of all the churches, they alone had this fellowship or joint participation, a kononesan, uh, the verbal form to have in this relationship, to have this association, uh, in terms of giving and receiving from him in the beginning of the gospel. Uh, that they even sent, need him for his, excuse me, they've sent support for his needs when he was in Thessalonica in Acts 17, 1 through 10, that story is related. And we can see here that the Philippians provide direct support to him. And that the, in the beginning of the gospel, is clearly not absolutely true. Uh, neither Paul nor the Philippians were anywhere near Jesus uh, at the beginning of the gospel. But in terms of their conversion, the beginning of the gospel, that is when they had heard it, when they had received it, when they had obeyed it, and now that they were living in it and standing fast in it. And he makes it clear, he's not seeking this gift for his own purposes, but really it's for them. He has received what the Philippians have sent by the hands of Aphroditus, and he speaks of it in terms of ritual offering to God, a sweet-smelling sacrifice. Uh, you see that consistently in the Old Testament with sacrifice language. It is a, 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 a sweet-smelling aroma uh, before God. 
Because of this, Paul is sure that God will supply the needs of the Philippians to the riches of glory in Jesus. He then praises God in what we call doxology, a statement of praise, that, that he may receive the glory, Asus Ionas ton Ionon, unto the age of the age, that is, forever and ever. And why it's put that way in First Philippians 4, 19 and 20. And now in verses 21-23, he finally provides the final greetings in an epistolary conclusion. He asks the Philippians, which is to salute or greet all the saints. That the brethren with him salute and greet the Philippian Christians, as do the saints, especially those uh, that is from the household of Caesar. And this is how we know that he's writing from imprisonment in Rome and not in Caesarea. Now, this doesn't mean automatically that somebody in Nero's family that we would understand as family, has converted. Although there's some speculation that Papea, who was Nero's mistress and later wife, might have been a god-fearer, might have been somebody who had a belief in the Jewish god. Josephus comments on it, but there hasn't been any sub- sub- substantiating information. Uh, it's far more likely that these saints that Paul's talking about are of the household in terms of the slaves. They're the slaves that are serving in Caesar's household, uh, that prepares food, they clean, that do all the manual labor, maybe even some of the ones who grow some crops or, or, or have some related job in Rome. That would have been a very large retinue, a very large number of people. So it would not be at all surprising if some of those slaves had obeyed the gospel and served as Christians despite being in Caesar's household. Paul ends the letter with a standard conclusion. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with uh, the Spirit, singular of you, plural. That's very odd. Um, some of the manuscripts read, least you all. And that, maybe, the, the manuscript information is not as strong, and it might try to be making sense of it, but uh, that's very strange grammar. Uh, the Lord Jesus would be with the Spirit of all of you, or with your spirits, plural, either way. And so, thus we see what Paul has written to the Philippians. And as we wrap up this letter, we see some really important things. The idea of rejoicing is this theme throughout Philippians. As we mentioned, he talks about it five times. Chapter 1, 4, 1, 18, 2, 2, 17, 18, 3, 1, and 4, 4. Uh, this is a lot of references, six references, actually. And it seems odd to us, perhaps, because Paul's conditions are less than ideal. You find very few people who will find reasons to rejoice when they're imprisoned, to suffer for another, and and actually to be seeking to be conformed to somebody's death, especially such a horrendous death on a cross, as we saw in Philippians 3, 9 through 11. Now, Paul's not rejoicing because he enjoys feelings of suffering or that he really enjoys imprisonment. He rejoices in spite of these things. And that's exactly what Paul's actually trying to make clear to the Philippians and to us. That dire situations, pain and misery and suffering are exactly the time in which we should rejoice. Not because we enjoy these things, but because we find our satisfaction and our hope in Jesus. As he said in chapter 129-30, these Philippians are now sharing in the sea sufferings. They must rejoice in Jesus because of their faith and hope that it will sustain them through whatever they must endure. It's a good question to ask. Do, do we as Christians really rejoice in Jesus? Does our countenance brighten as we consider the resurrection to come? Are we positive despite the circumstances, resolute despite danger, and hopeful no matter the odds, exactly because Jesus lived and died but was raised in power and he now sits at the right hand of the throne of God? We would do very well to restore a sense of rejoicing in the Lord no matter what, and often because of our circumstances. To rejoice, always. To rejoice, 
Another thing that he talks about, which is very important for humanity, one of the major themes that humanity deals with, is the existential anxiety in the face of opposition in the creation. When we talk about that, it's the fact that we, we've got all these forces against us that are so overwhelming that all we think, can really do is worry about them. Jesus talks about it in Matthew six twenty-five through 34 for good reason. Because humans are naturally anxious and afraid because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. And we are aware that no matter how much we try to control and manipulate the uh, creation around us, that there are many forces beyond our control. In this powerlessness, we have power over our thinking about the future. And that's how we have power over worrying, and that's why we worry. Now, Paul says very clearly, we are not to be anxious in Philippians 4.6. That as Jesus said, we should put our trust in God, the Father, that he will provide what we need. That he's not going to provide evil things, that he will give good gifts to us, Luke 11, 5-13. And that first just means we need to realize we don't have the power. But Paul doesn't stop there, he goes further. The way that we overcome anxiety is to demonstrate our trust in God by making our prayers and supplications with thanksgiving. So how do we not have anxiety? We pray. We pray and we bring supplications with thanksgiving to God. When we do that, we're entrusting God with our difficulties, our challenges, and our fears. We've got to do it in thanksgiving, because we are tempted to forget all that God has already done for us. When we are engaged in thanksgiving, we're reminded and reassured of our Father's provisions, that He has seen us through thus far, and therefore we should not have any reason to believe He will abandon us now. And when we do that, God is going to give us a peace that surpasses understanding. If you've ever experienced that peace, you understand its source and its supreme value. And yes, part of that peace is the recognition that you're reconciled to your Creator who cares for you. And that any trouble of the world is of less consequence than that. That's why Jesus will say in Matthew 10, 28, not to fear the one who can, who can kill the body, but the one who can cast body and soul into hell. And this reconciliation is Romans 5, 6 through 11. Paul teases out the consequence of that in 8, 31 through 39, boldly declaring that we've gained the victory in Jesus, and if God is for us, who can be against us? But it's not just this recognition of reconciliation, it's also a transcendental tranquility that does not exist naturally in the high stress situations we find ourselves in, that normally breeds anxiety. So it is an, a supernatural peace that, that God can provide and does provide to his people. And it is extremely empowering and reassuring and a great source of hope and confidence in difficult times. We need to recognize that the challenges that we are dealing with are greater than we can handle. We look at Ephesians 6.12, and the fact that the forces and powers against us are not flesh and blood, but the spiritual forces over this present darkness, making it far worse, far more challenging. This is why we must depend on God. Because he can provide strength and peace beyond our abilities or understanding. And the sooner we quit trying to hold on to the vestige of control that we think we have in anxiety, the better off we're going to be. And so Paul shows a surpassing value of prayer, dependence on God, and the realization that God will provide exactly what we need for us. And it's good to think about the good. As Paul says, that we do well to meditate on this thought that he concludes with that we should think on what is true and honorable and just and pure, commendable, praiseworthy, virtuous, lovely, and excellent. Philippians 4.8. In Proverbs 23.7, as a man thinks, that is who he is. And that Jesus affirms in Mark 7 that everything we do derives what we think and feel, that is what comes out of a man that defiles him, not what goes into a man. So what we think about will invariably influence what we feel and what we do. 
so it is that there are few things more important than make sure that we meditate on the good so we may have good feelings and good behavior. And that's why we can't think we can put in a bunch of evil or impure thoughts and get out good behavior. Yes, in the name of this principle, we understand that we should avoid coarse jesting, filthy talk, sexualized imagery, grotesque violence, and things like that. But we also need to be on guard against constant negativity from ourselves, from those we love, those whom we feel are on our side, because negativity can be as toxic as the immorality we're seeking to avoid. I mean, let's think about it. What's the whole self-help industry built on? It's the idea of positive thinking, positive reinforcement, positive self-esteem, and encouragement of others. Paul has anticipated that long before and grounded it in a much more coherent theology that God is good and pure and righteous and holy and we should meditate on what is good and righteous and holy and we will get strength from him and we will find the strength to be who we need to be. That is why we need to meditate on what is good and bright and lovely and pure. We talk about these major themes of humanity as Paul seems to be dealing with. Another one is that we never have enough. We never have enough as human beings. It never seems to fail. It doesn't matter where you are. You could be in, act- in poverty where you actually are in need of food and clothing and things. And those people are, are very much in need of assistance. And there is a point of poverty where you don't have enough. But then such people may get a little bit of food, get a little bit of money, but now they don't have enough for shelter. Well, maybe then they can get a little bit more, and now they can get shelter, but now there's not enough for something else. You can reach middle-class standing, and you have enough for right now, maybe, but you don't have enough to be comfortable and not enough for confidence in the future. Maybe you can get all the way to full wealthy status, but there's always even there more to have, more to store up and invest, more to provide for one's descendants, more to display that you're doing better than others. We can never, as humans, have enough unless we learn to find enough in what we have. That's Paul's lesson about the false teachers in 1 Timothy 6 through 10 that they think godliness is a way of gain, that godliness is a way of gain with contentment, that we have not brought anything into the world, we can't take anything out. And that's the core idea in 4 11 through 13 if you're in Philippians. That he has found the power of being able to abound or be in want to find contentment in the circumstances. What is it? that he can do all things through God who strengthens him. In God, Paul has abounded. He has had something for those in need. He's been grounded in the faith at that time. In God, Paul has learned to be without, to trust in the provisions of the Lord and his people, and to find greater value in the hope of the resurrection than any that's standing in this life. Paul's not just trying to say, well, be satisfied in the little you have when you have little because you have Christ. There's lessons just as much to trust in Christ even when you abound. The abundance comes from blessings of God and Christ and should be used for his purposes. As he tells the rich of this world in first Timothy six, seven through eighteen. Of a truth we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, and without Christ we can do nothing. And we need to learn in him the power of contentment to look at what we have as a stewardship to be used for our needs and for the needs of others. So thus we have seen how Paul concludes the letter to the Philippians that he's encouraged them to stand fast in the Lord, to be of one mind, to rejoice, to not be anxious, to pray, to find peace and contentment in the power of God in Christ, to follow the example of Paul, and the commendation of support and salutation of Christians. And thus we do well to stand fast in the Lord, to be mature in the faith by being of one heart and mind, to humble ourselves so God can exalt us, and to press forward on to the resurrection, to be ever joyful, to meditate on the good, to do all things through the power of God in Christ.
We're again thankful that you've spent this time with us. We hope that you've been encouraged. If there's anything you'd like to talk about in Philippians, or perhaps from something else in the Bible, maybe you've got to, some questions about becoming a Christian, or uh, maybe you just need to talk, or you've got prayer requests or something, just let me know. Please contact me through my website, deverbalvitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. And if perhaps you'd like to learn more about the Venture of Christ, you can find us online at VentureToChrist.org. And we're also on Facebook, Google+, Instagram, and Twitter, Venice Church of Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.